0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Our couples, our, our families that are in the UAE right now, Brenda McLaughlin, uh, she was in my son-in-law's medical school class. She was a top graduate in their medical class. She did an OB-GYN residency. She was on ob staff at Scott and & White. And she said, uh, I'll go. I'll go wherever God wants me to go, and she's in UAE. The other couple, Tim and Nino Fincher. Nino is a master's degree counselor from Dallas Seminary. Tim Fincher did an ophthalmology residency here, and uh, they said we will not, dec- will not stay here. We'll go wherever we're needed. And so those families are there. These couples are here. I challenge you to pick one of these up on the way out, and let's generously support them as they go out and uh, cover their expenses for that. I, as a pastor, my heart's filled with joy when I see that. Filled with joy when I see you having Bible studies in our community. Somebody asked me just this week, "How come y'all will not uh, we're, we're designing a new building right now. We're not putting a coffee shop in, and nothing wrong with that. There are churches all over America have done that. I want to see you in the coffee shops with people. That's why. I don't want to compete with local businesses. And secondly, I want to see you with your Bible open at a table with somebody else, ministering to them and uh, allowing folks to see the work of Christ on display. So not going to have a coffee shop. I'll buy you coffee anytime you want. Come see me. I'll take you to Starbucks, and we'll sit there and have a great time together. But that's why we're not going to do stuff like that. We are going to be ambassadors in this community throughout Central Texas for the cause of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and for him to be famous among the nations. So that's why we do what we do the way we do it, okay? So it's not... I appreciate that that's not right or wrong that's just our philosophy of ministry and uh you know we just went to a conference in dallas and church there had a great coffee shop i enjoyed their coffee and uh i'll get more when i go there but we're not gonna do that okay so much for preaching let's look at the word together let's look at the word together mark chapter six turn your bibles on or open them to mark chapter six in the middle of a series we call The Journey. Now we're going to see the difficulty in the journey. I've called it The Hard Side of Obedience. We're going to look at Jesus, we're going to look at the disciples, and we're going to look at John the Baptist, and they're all going to be rejected. So another bright and cheery morning at TBC. We're going to study rejection this morning. How's that one? Uh, You get my permission to take off right now if you don't want to hear it. That's fine. You reject me as you walk out. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. His hometown was Nazareth, by the way, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. where did this man get these things, they ask? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, one of the most famous uh, verses in the Gospels, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his own relatives in his own house. He could not do any more miracles. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them, which I find is an interesting verse. Couldn't do anything else, but he healed a few people along the way. And then it says he was amazed at their faith. He was amazed at their reception. He was amazed at their repentance. What's it say? He was amazed at their lack of faith. Father, there are things that amaze us, things that amaze you. Kings and kingdoms will stand in amazement. You stood amazed at the unbelief of these people. They stood amazed, Lord Jesus, at your teaching. And now, as we look at this topic, we pray you teach us in Christ's name. Amen rejection we've all experienced sometime along the way the most painful rejection perhaps is a kind that christ is experiencing here it's a rejection of those you're closest to your family they've already rejected him in mark chapter three in fact they said he's crazy and now he's rejected by the community he grew up in he warned his disciples when you take the gospel to the streets you're going to be rejected as well and then john the baptist experienced ultimate rejection he lost his head for following the savior rejection it's painful Here's an actual Craigslist ad that shows you pain. For sale, wedding dress, size 8, worn once by mistake. It's funny, but it's haunting, isn't it? It's funny, but it's haunting. You can hear the pain in that ad. Pain, the pain of rejection, the struggle with rejection, the battle with rejection. How many of you know the story of the orphan train? The orphan train. Anybody out there? A handful of us do. The orphan train was interesting. Between 1859 and 1929, so a period of about 60 years in our country, about 200,000 orphans and abandoned children from the eastern cities of America were placed on trains that were bound westward, each in search of a home, each in search of a family. These orphans were placed on trains somewhere out east, and they were sent literally through to the west, literally through Texas, As one of the stops or one of the many stops along the way. These were orphans, people who, kids that were either forsaken by parents or had parents that died or any number of reasons why they became orphans along the way. So during the 50 years, over 200,000, let that number sink into your mind, over 200,000 kids were placed in trains. When they would come to different cities, they would be, they would, they would be brought out and put on display, actually. They would be put on display on platforms and be examined at viewings like you were viewing livestock. And literally, uh, people would walk up to them, ask them questions, evaluate their health, and even examine their teeth, the orphan train. Lee Nailing remembers his experience. He said, I've been living in Jefferson County orphan home for two years when, as an eight-year-old, I was taken up with my two younger brothers to a train station in New York City. The day before, my father had handed me an envelope and it bore his name and address and he said, when you get to wherever you're gone, write to me. And that was the only goodbye we had. And so I got on the train with my two brothers. The train embarked for Texas. He said, I and my brothers fell sound asleep. When I awoke, the envelope was gone. I never saw it again. I'd love to tell you that Lee's father woke up and came to his senses and that he went searching for his three sons and found them. But that's not the way the story ends. It's not the way the story ends. One of the ladies came to me, Celeste Housel, came to me after, church, after first hour's morning. She said, my grandmother was on an orphan train. My grandmother was adopted in Westphalia, Texas, by a family when she was chosen on an orphan train. There's a book called The Orphan Train. There's also a book called Unchosen. Unchosen. Just that title elicits pain in our hearts. Pain. The pain of rejection by a family, pain of rejection by a spouse. I never loved you, never did. I'm out of here. Pain of rejection by friends. You get on Facebook, everybody's headed out together, but you weren't invited. Rejection by kids. You're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, and those that you love the most won't be around your table. They're not invited. You're not invited. You're not going to see your grandkids, and it's a painful thing. It may be with a roommate, it may be with a soulmate, it may be with someone in ministry, it may be with me. You feel like you've been rejected somewhere along the way. Jesus identifies with your pain. Jesus is the one who stands there with you in the midst of everything that's happening. Jesus experienced rejection from his community, from his family. The disciples would experience rejection. And John the Baptist would experience rejection. First of all, the hard side of obedience. Nobody wants to hear this. We'd rather hear a sermon on the best life now. We would rather be told, this is really living right here, and that everything's going to be good. You come to Jesus, and everything is a flowery bed of ease. We'd like to hear that. But that's just not true. You've been sold a bill of goods, if that's the case. In fact, in James chapter 1, it says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, if you encounter various trials. Is that what it says there? Nah says when you encounter various trials so the spiritual life lived out in a fallen world will have a number of speed bumps along the way different issues that will cause us to go through painful events the hard side of obedience this is when you do what's right when you obey the savior there's still a hard side the savior is rejected by his community if you look in chapter six verse one it says that uh, he came to his hometown his hometown was Nazareth. He's accompanied by his disciples. He's a rabbi, and he's leading those whom he is teaching. And so he, his, his disciples are following after him. He comes to his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth is a small community. It was a village of about 500 people. I, I have teased some of my friends from Buckholtz. It's kind of like living in Buckholz, is what it is. I mean, you, you've got Buckholz is about 600 I, I, or 400, I guess. I looked it up. Where are you, Sanders? Where are you out there? How many 400? Is that right? About 400 in Buckholtz, 3, 398, because you all are here this morning. Uh, but... But, but anyway, I mean, it's, it's about 400 folks. It's about five, and, and a city of five, In a village of 500 people, everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business. And, and, and Nazareth is on about 60 acres. It, it was a small, sleepy hamlet. It was on about 60 acres. So, I mean, in, in this town, there was one marketplace, 500 people. Everybody knew everybody, and a lot of them were related. Almost sounds like a town in Arkansas, doesn't it? But it was really Nazareth. And, and what we see here is this is where Jesus grew up. This is where he learned the skill of being a carpenter from his father. After they were, he was born in Bethlehem, they fled to Egypt, then they came back to Nazareth. Today, interestingly enough, Nazareth is the largest city in the northern part of Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee in that area. It's comprised of about, I need to look at my notes, I forget that number. It's comprised of about 200,000 people. It's called the Arab capital of Israel because of those 200,000 people, 60% of them are Muslim Arabs. And so in the birthplace of, or the city where Jesus grew up today, it's, uh, it's inhabited by those who need the Savior, those who need the Savior. Well, Jesus comes back to his home village, and uh, he is rejected. There's no ticker tape parade. There are no banquets welcoming home the hero. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. He's attacked and rejected by his community. And let me remind you that community was everything. 500 people in that day and age. If if a man died, then the community would take care of the widow. If the parents died, the community would take care of the kids. If there was a birth of a baby, the community took care of the the, the new mom. Everything was around community. So Jesus comes back to the community he had been a part of his entire life. He began to teach in the synagogue, and they heard them. Look at the end of verse 2. If you write in your Bibles, they were amazed. They were amazed. There's our word. They were amazed. What were they amazed by? Where did this man get these things? Where does this wisdom come from, and how can he do these miracles? They listened to the words of Christ, and they looked at the works of Christ, his words and his works, and their conclusion is, wow, where did he get this? How can he do that? It's amazing to see what he can do. But then the next verse is just filled with sarcasm. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's boy? Isn't this the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Those words are sarcastic because, how do I know that? Because at the end it says they took offense at him, and Jesus' response is, a prophet is welcome everywhere but his hometown with his own people. By the way, two things to note in verse 3. Isn't this Mary's son who's missing? Joseph is missing. Scholars speculate that Joseph has died by now. He's no longer in the scene. It also could be the use of a derogatory remark. This is a patriarchal society. When you refer to someone, you refer to him son of the man, not the woman. This is Mary's boy. Maybe they're even intimating this is the illegitimate son, the bastard boy of Mary. We can't say that for sure, but it's a a, a possibility. But for sure, they're offending him. They took offense at him. The other thing to note, there's a teaching in the Roman Catholic Church that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She was not only a virgin for the birth of Jesus, but she remained a virgin her entire life. Uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters. I guarantee you that Mary was not a virgin the rest of her life. That is a false teaching. So you can see it right here in the text. You see where, indeed, there are brothers and sisters to Christ. Mary had a husband. His name was Joseph. They had other children together, and she was not a perpetual virgin throughout her whole life. And I don't mean to be offensive to my Catholic brothers and sisters who are here and several who listen online, but it's the reality of the doctrine that is true. And so we look at this, and Jesus comes to his hometown, and we see that rather than celebrating his success, they're skeptical. They attempt to discredit him. He performs miracles they don't believe. They're amazed at him, and look at the end of verse 5, 6, rather. He is amazed at them. He's amazed at their lack of faith. They're amazed with him because of his words and his works. He's amazed at them because he's speaking these words and he's doing these works, these miracles, and they do not believe. In fact, they take offense against him. They're jealous. Hey, this is Mary's boy. This is the carpenter's son who grew up with us. Weren't these his sisters? Aren't these the same ones who, in Mark chapter 3, verses 30 and 31, aren't they the ones who came to seize him last time he's here and saying he's lost his mind? Who does he think he is? Basically, that's what they're saying in these verses. And Jesus, that's why his response is, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Let me give you a couple of quick applications when we we'll move on. Application number one, celebrate, don't be jealous of other success. Celebrate, don't be jealous of other success. I'm amazed at how jealousy rifes through the ranks of churches, especially. Pastors are the worst. Pastors are the worst. Right? We get jealous when somebody else is succeeding, another church is doing well, and we get mad if somebody leaves our church. I'm going to tell you, if you leave, just write me a letter, let me know, thank me for being your pastor for six months, for a year, for 30 years, and I'm going to bless you and hug your neck in Walmart and H-E-B. It's God's business whose vineyard you go in, not mine. I mean, we're not about building our kingdom, we're about building his kingdom. And we love you. And if you've got all the equipping you need to hear, if God needs you to be somewhere else for other reasons, just go. Be part of that. It's okay with us. But we we want to be. We, we, the enemy is not the other churches. I pray for a different church every week in our community. The, the churches that wave the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that they will succeed, that the doors would bust wide open, and that God would bring people. We are allies in the battle. We're not enemies in the battle. The enemy is Satan. And so don't speak derogatorily of another church. That name's the gospel. Now, if there's a false teaching, I'm not afraid to call it out. If T V C is teaching something false, you call us out. But here's the reality. when We are allies in the battle. We are, don't be jealous about somebody else's success. Don't do it in, in the marketplace where you work. Don't do it in families. Don't do it when your football team gets beat like a drum. Don't do it that way. <laughs> Go crew, right? I love college football. Celebrate. Don't be jealous of others. Celebrate their success. Everything God has done for them and through them. Jealousy will decimate the ranks of many. Secondly, if you've been rejected, you've been rejected like Christ is. By those closest to you. By a husband, by a wife, by a son or a daughter, by a mom or a dad. You say, Gary, I wasn't an orphan trained, but I feel like an orphan at times. You've got a savior who knows what you feel like. He went back to his own town and they took offense at him and he was amazed by their unbelief. In times of trouble, God can seem far away, but he's not. He's always near and he wants us to know that he wants us to feel his embrace and feel secure in him. But although he's always close to us, when trouble strikes, we either move closer to him or further away. I've literally had thousands of people ask, how can we pray for you? How can we pray for you? Well, right now I'm praying there are no side effects from the medicine I'm taking nor that, uh, or, and also that that medicine will be effective. Minimal side effects, and by God's grace, fourth infusion this week, and the only side effects I've had are a little itching, but we can live with itching. But it's a, it's a harsh reality. If you go to our website, I've updated my health situation there. By God's grace, I'm doing well. I, I don't think about cancer much, to be honest with you. My, my days have normalized. Our family has normalized. But when you go down to MD Anderson, they slap a bracelet on your wrist it's a cold slap in the face of reality and and you realize this will either draw me closer to the savior or it'll push me away from the savior and so if you want to pray for me pray that every step of this journey i'll be drawn closer to the savior and you know what i'm gonna pray that for you too every step of the journey that you're on good or bad would draw you closer to the savior that you will honor him with your life, and you'll be drawn. The songs we sang this morning, I don't know if you noticed the theme in there, is to, be drawn, is to be drawn in the presence of God here in his presence where I'm done. And it's all about being drawn into his presence. And so Jesus was rejected by his community. Secondly, he tells the disciples, he commissions them to go. For months, the disciples had listened as Jesus preached to the crowds, and they watched in awe as he performed miracles, and now he says, go and do what I do. Jesus commissioning his followers from seeing to doing, observing to leading, watching to participate. He had modeled to them what to do, now he tells them to go and do it. Calling the twelve to himself, verse seven, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. We've looked at that word authority many times. Authority means might and right. Dunamis means, means might. Uh, the word used here, exousia, means might and right. He has the might and right to do it. We've used this illustration a dozen times. On a football field, you've got 300-pound linemen colliding. You've got fast-footed receivers running and cornerbacks and safeties covering them. But there's one guy with a black and white shirt and a pat and a whistle in his mouth. He has. Those guys have dunamis. They've got power. The guy with the whistle has exousia. That means authority. He has the right and the might. And Jesus says, I'm sending you out with the might and the right to do it. So don't come to me and say, Pastor, I can't do that. You can. You've got the power of God and the authority of God in your life. So God calls you into ministry. He's going to equip you. He says, guys, I'm sending you out. I'm giving you everything you need. So you feel like God is telling you in your heart to start a Bible study in the community, a Bible study in your workplace, and you say, I can't do it. You're right. You can't, but he can. And when the Spirit of God taps on your heart to go and ask forgiveness from somebody and say, I can't do it, or to 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 have that, to go and apologize or to go and get right, you're right, you can't, but he can. Or when God taps your heart and says, you talk about generosity, but you're not generous. You don't tithe. Yeah, you tip God. You're right, you can't do it, but he can. I, I, I don't know what it is in your life and where you are. You're saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. God says, you're right, you can't, you can't. But I can, I can, I can. Here's exousia, I'm going to clothe you in authority. That means might and right go out and do it. So the disciples are gone out, and look at what happens. He, he says he instructed them that they should take nothing with them on the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, uh, no, and, and to wear their sandals. So take two things, your staff and take your sandals. Take your staff and take your sandals. By the way, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, it's up here in front of you. This is Passover. The nation of Israel is having to flee Egypt. And as they're fleeing Egypt, he says, this is how you're to eat the Passover lamb. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Notice the two things he says you're to take with you. You take your sandals and you take your staff and nothing else. You go, you're going to have to trust me. He tells them that in the book of Exodus. See, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, take your staff and wear your sandals, don't take anything else. They celebrated Passover every year. The disciples knew this first. They knew that there was an urgency in the tone. This was an urgent tone. He's saying, I want you to go. The Egyptians are coming. We've got to get out of here. Eat the lamb, ready to run with your cloak tucked in, your sandals on your feet, your staff is in your head, nothing else, and go. And that's what Jesus told his the disciples. There should be an urgency in our evangelism. That's what he's saying the disciples to do. One of I read this week said he was uh, at, a, at a red light. He says at the red light, there was a bus on the opposite corner. He said, I noticed that there were a group of ladies calling their friend from in front of me to come to the bus. And as she darted across the street, what she didn't see was a truck coming in the opposite direction. I watched as that truck hit her and drove her into the ground. As that truck drove her into the ground, we all began to fling open our doors and run to the aid of this lady. And here's what he writes. He said, this thought occurred to me after the whole incident was over. When the woman had been hit, unfortunately her injuries were not fatal. Men ran over to her. Women ran over to her. White people ran to her. Black people ran to her. Skilled people ran to her. Unskilled people ran to her. It didn't matter to any of us. We knew that she could possibly be dying and we wanted to do whatever we could do. And then he writes this. We all know people who are dying just like she, we, we thought she was. Headed to the flames of eternal destruction. Shouldn't we be running to them? Shouldn't we? How can you work with somebody for 20 years and them not hear the name of Jesus from your lips? How can you live next door to somebody for five years and they don't know that you're a Christ follower? How, how can you play golf with a group of guys And they not know that you are a disciple of the Savior. How can you live in a dorm? How how can you be in an apartment? How, How can you be in some club in our community, some service club, and folks don't know that you're a Christ follower because you haven't told them? How can that be? How can it be? he told the disciples, he said, I, I want you to know when this happens, uh, you're not going to be accepted by all. You're going to go. You're going to take this stuff. There's an urgency in it. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. But if there's a place where you're not welcome, dust the, the, shake the dust off your feet. That's a term that's used to, to leave. It's basically we don't want the dust of the Gentiles on our feet. That's how it was known in Jewish circles. So you run. You leave. You leave everything behind. There should be an urgency, and that should happen. The disciples, commissioned by the Savior, and he warns them, you're going to be rejected. You're going to have to shake the dust off your feet. Finally, the other hard side of obedience is John the Baptist. You have Christ rejected by his community and by his family. You have the disciples who going to go and preach and be rejected by those they preach to, and they're going to have to shake the dust off their feet. Then you have John the Baptist, who's the messenger, who's killed because of his obedience. He's killed. You say, that's what I get for following Christ? Sometimes that's the case. Missionaries are murdered, Diseases come. Abuse happens. Even when we follow the king. Even when we follow the king. Now, we've looked at John the Baptist earlier in the study. I don't expect you can remember it, but uh, you can go online and listen to it again if it behooves you. But I want to call your attention to one verse. It says in verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. If you remember the story, Herod is his brother's wife. He's taken her and uh, it's wrong. It's sinful. And John the Baptist is calling out, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod is a Gentile king. John the Baptist is a Jewish prophet. He looks at the king and says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Whose law? Whose law? I mean, what's John talking about? This guy is a Gentile king. He could care less about Jewish law. I mean, he's a, he's a, have you ever thought about that? I mean, here is a Gentile king. He makes the law. If he wants to break the law, he can break the law. He is the lawmaker in his own eyes. So what does John mean when he says it's not lawful for you, To have your brother's wife. He's looking at Herod and saying, Herod, you think you're the lawmaker, but there's a greater lawmaker than you are. And you think you are without, without, uh, blot, without, uh, guilt, but I want you to know there's a higher authority than you are. And you think you're on this throne by your own power, but there's one who's empowered you to be on this throne. Herod, there's a law greater than you. There's a law that you need to follow. There is a lawmaker that you need to hear from. You are living this life and it's wrong. It's not lawful. It's not lawful. There is a God who has spoken, and you think you're above him, but Herod, you are not. And Herod, you may kill the messenger, but you're not going to stop the message. Do you see it? Do you see it? He is a, John the Baptist is the prophetic voice of that day speaking into the culture of that day. He looks at him and says, God has spoken and you're not listening. You may be the king, but there's a greater king than you. And you may break the law, but there's a greater law than the law that you make. I want you to know, Herod, that that I'm speaking into your life through the power of the living God. And John the Baptist was the prophetic voice into the culture of his day. We as the church are called to be the prophetic voice into the culture of our day. We are called to speak truth into our day. Abortion is sinful and wrong homosexuality is sinful and wrong same-sex marriage is sinful and wrong we need to be the prophetic voice speaking into the community and the culture of today now before you start clapping because your pastor has taken a bold stand and made those statements and i believe those things from the word of god let me also look you in the eye and say this your immorality is wrong and your gluttony is wrong and your greed is wrong and your materialism is wrong And if you're going to stand up and trumpet abortion, you better be willing to take the unwed mother into your house or adopt her baby or serve on the board of Hope Pregnancy Center or be willing to be involved in the process. And if you're going to stand up here and talk about homosexuality, let me tell you what it's like. The day that Chick-fil-A, you remember there was a protest against Chick-fil-A by the homosexual community? There was one young man that stood in the corner at Chick-fil-A here, and he was a homosexual holding up a sign. And I know the young man. And so I took him a bottle of water and placed in his hand. And as I was there, I watched cars filled with church people holler out, you fag, I hope you go to hell. And I watched a church person shoot the finger at this guy. And I began to pray for them as much as I prayed for the young man, because they are just as wrong. And so I look at that. We are told to be the prophetic voice into our culture, but you do it in a loving way. You love them. You care for them. And you minister to them. Stop global whining. I love that bumper sticker. (laughs) Follow a Savior. Finally, John the Baptist rejected the best life now. And somebody can be mad because I'm, I mean, Joel Osteen wrote a book called The Best Life Now. If the best life is now, and you believe that, you're duped. How's that? Everybody's going to hate me after this. The Aggies hate me. The... <laughs> hey, if the best life is now, in seven, you're going to live an average of 78-point years. This is the best life? What are you going to do for all of eternity? And if this is the best life now, what about being in the presence of Jesus and being undone? This is not the best life. You ought to be shouting hallelujah and praise God right now. Because this is not the best life. You've been sold a bill of goods if you believe that. You've been sold a bill of goods. And some of you, man, you can't wait to hear that message. It's a feel-good message. The reality of it, the best life is to come. It's not now. The best life is in the presence of our Heavenly Father. The best life is in the presence of His Son. The best life is yet to come. And the best life now is being willing to obey regardless of the cost. Worship team, would you guys come up? Remember that 8-year-old boy, Lee Nailing, on the orphan train? As Paul Harvey would say, let me give you the rest of the story. Give you the rest of the story. Lee Nailing was on that orphan train actually came to Texas, came to Texas eight years old. He lost his father's letter, no idea how to get in touch with his father. He said things got worse before they got better. He said my two brothers and I were taken to several towns. Nobody chose us. On the sixth day, someone in a small Texas town adopted my youngest brother. Then a family selected me and my next youngest brother, and we went to their house, and they liked my younger brother, but they didn't like me. And so I sent to another home, and it was a rancher, and I knew nothing about ranching, so they sent me to another home. In succession of sad events, I had lost my father, my brothers, been sent on a train from New York to Texas, separated from my two brothers, kicked out of two houses. I was an angry young man. Finally, in the last house, there was a tall man and a sharp, plump woman. During the first supper, I said nothing. I went to bed making plans to run away in the morning. The next morning we sat down at breakfast. Biscuits and gravy and eggs. I'd never seen such a spread. An orphan boy to have this put in front of him. Miss Nailing said as I reached for a biscuit, not until we said grace. I watched as they bowed their heads. Miss Nailing spoke softly to our father, thanking him for the food and the beautiful day. And I knew enough about God to know that whoever this woman's father was, was probably the same one that the preachers had told us about in the orphanage. I couldn't understand why she was talking to him as though he was sitting right there in that empty chair next to us. When she was praying, I heard her thank God for the privilege of raising a son. I thought maybe they had another son somewhere. But she was talking about me. Me. A privilege, he writes. writes. Mr. Nailing must have agreed with her. It's hard to make it through this. A blubber like a baby first hour. <laughs> Mr. Nailing must have agreed with her because he was beginning to smile too. For the first time since I boarded the train, I felt like I belonged. She concluded the sermon by saying, help us make the right choices as we guide him and help him make right choices too. Dig in, son, said the man's voice. I didn't even notice the amen. Choices, I've got a choice. I think I'll just stay here. After breakfast, we walked down to the barbershop. We stopped at six houses along the way. Each time, the nailings introduced me as our new son. As we left the last house, I knew that at the first light, the next day, I'd be, I won't be running away. There's something else that happened. Although I never would find out where my papa was, how I could get in touch with him, and he never came looking for me. I had a strong feeling on this day, I had found not one, but two fathers. Wow. That's powerful, powerful. That's where you're supposed to bail me out, right here. <laughs> hey, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray for you. That, that is, that's one of the most. Google up the orphan train or unchosen. Read about this. Can you imagine what that's like. Some of you have been rejected. You've been rejected, and reconciliation has happened. And you praise God for that. You've gone through a divorce, you've gotten back together, or you've been unfaithful, you've gotten back together, or you you had a mom or dad who rejected you, and it worked out. And we say, to God be the glory. But that hadn't happened for some of you. For some of you, the pain of rejection is so real right now, you can't stand it. I'm asking you to do a very bold thing. I'm asking you to stand right now so I can pray for you. The very bold thing. Some of you have experienced rejection of parents, rejection of spouse, rejection of kids from someone else, I'm going to ask you to do a bold, bold thing, right, and stand up so I can pray for you. It's a bold thing. We need to thank God for these people before we do anything else. Thank God for them. Would you do that? Father, these are courageous men and women, courageous. And God, I pray, I pray that they will turn to and run to you. Father, I don't know these circumstances, but I know reconciliation can take place through you, maybe not with other people, but through you. And so to you be great glory, to you be great honor, to you be great praise. Minister to these, my dear brothers and sisters. Let's all stand with them together as we sing.